through newborn screening research, I think I have found the purpose of my life. And I think that's common for parents with uh, kids with rare disease. Um, we all go through a period of soul searching, you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What does this all mean? Why are we, you know, facing these challenges? Is there anything behind it? Why me? Um, and, 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 you know, a while back, we did a presentation for an event and my wife was there as well. She quoted something that I thought was really meaningful uh, and, and, and made me realize why this is so uh, important to me uh, in my you know, soul searching process. She quoted uh, some words from Steve Jobs and uh, not to reiterate the whole thing. The gist of it is in your life, there are a lot of dots along the way and but you cannot connect these dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. And so when you look back and connect the dots, you will realize, oh, what you're doing is actually meaningful. And so because you cannot connect your dots looking forward, all you can trust is your instinct, your desire, your wish. Just follow your heart and do what you think is right. Today, we're joined by Dr. Zanzu Hu, who is the co-founder and president of Project Guardian, a nonprofit organization with the mission of advancing genomics-based newborn screening. The goal of Project Guardian is to sequence the genomes of 100,000 babies in New York City. Mike's dedication and motivation to ensuring that all babies have the best chance to live a healthy life stems from his own experience as a parent of two children with a rare disorder called mucopolysaccharidosis, known as MPS2, and also called Hunter syndrome. Mike is an adult advocate for newborn screening and works tirelessly to bridge the gap between advanced technologies and the critical need for expansion of the newborn screening public health program. Mike is also adjunct associate researcher at Columbia University, where he conducts newborn screening related research. Dr. Hugh received his PhD degree in molecular genetics and microbiology from the University of Texas at Austin and his bachelor degree in cell biology and genetics from Peking University. Dr. Hugh is currently on the steering committee and chairs the Researcher Needs Workgroup at the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, or MBSDRN. Mike will share his perspectives as a researcher, parent, and advocate for newborn screening research, as well as his efforts collectively with other key stakeholders in the research, clinical, and advocacy realm in helping to get MPS2 added to nationwide screening. Be inspired by his story of determination, perseverance, and purpose in advancing newborn screening research. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki Chan. And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MBSTRN. Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day, and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research 
by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates. To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, and learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Dr. Hugh, thank you so much for being a guest on the Newborn Screening Spotlight. So Dr. Hugh, you're the co-founder and president of Project Guardian, and Guardian stands for Genomic Uniform Screening Against Rare Diseases in All Newborns. Guardian is a new nonprofit organization with the mission of advancing genomics-based newborn screening. This is a joint effort with academia and industry. Can you tell our audience how this initiative came to be? Thanks for inviting me onto the podcast and sharing our experiences. Um, I This is a, a, a question with a very long answer. I'll try to be succinct. Um, so I started exploring uh, newborn screening about four years ago, and it was with a kind of the awakening call to myself that I wanted to find something more meaningful than my daily job. Uh, and there's the uh, practicality of uh, needing to take care of the kids and various uh, medical appointments and clinical trials. So I did, decided to step off from full-time jobs and started exploring uh, newborn screening and how I can help in there. Along the way, I, I uh, talked with various people. Uh, one of them, Dr. Yufeng Shen, he's a bioinformatician uh, and professor at uh, Columbia University. Uh, he's in the uh, area of uh, autism research initially, and he and he and I talked about this at, at length. He uh, is really endorsing this effort that I'm picturing in my head that we should use genomics to do uh, newborn screening research and see how we can apply that to the actual uh, screening one day. And he introduced me to Dr. Uh, Wendy Chang, his uh, collaborator at Columbia. And then uh, later on, I also connected with a policy expert and advocate uh, that I uh, know from prior advocacy experience, uh, Ms. Anna-Marie Saruman. So the four of us formed a core group and we started exploring, you know, we have this common vision that sequencing should be helpful. And it is one of the most available and ready tool to jump into the actual application uh, as newborn screening uh, platform. How can we make it happen? And obviously there's a lot of unanswered questions uh, wearing my researcher hat uh, I know genomics is it's a great tool, but it also has a lot of limitations that we have uh, yet to resolve. Uh, and particularly the um, genomic information that you get from uh, the actual sequencing, uh, sometimes they're not so easy to interpret. So we need a lot of uh, research effort to go into that. In addition, if our eventual mission is to uh, put together a uh, rust nomination package so that we can put these diseases together with sequencing as a platform into the review and uh, you know down the pipeline of public health implementation. We need to answer a lot more questions than just how sequencing can or genomic information can help with the identification of rare diseases. We also need to answer the cost benefit. We also need to answer uh, the benefit of early screening and diagnosis and treatment in, a, in opposed to clinical finding. We need to answer, uh, is our uh, screening method, in this case sequencing, uh, a good enough one? What's the performance? Uh, can we actually identify uh, these rare instances of uh, patients? Uh, and so all of those prompted us to think the first thing we need to do is a large-scale prospective newborn sequencing study that can help address those questions with real data. And in order to do that, a lot of uh, resources are needed. So uh, it's apparent after exploring for a while that if we want to get this support solely from public sources like NIH funds, uh, it's not going to be enough. Uh, we need to get there faster than what NIH grants typically could support. 
we need to get there with a bigger scale than what uh, public uh, grants can support. So we thought the the way that makes most sense is to follow steps of what others have explored before in uh, SMA and DND, uh, whereas a public private partnership can be formed and private entities such as pharmaceutical companies who have treatments uh, for these diseases or have uh, in their pipeline new treatments to be developed for these diseases. And one of the key in rare disease uh, that is lacking so far really is the interest from the biotech and pharmaceutical companies perspective of how to incentivize them to put their resources into new therapy development because you have very few patients uh, for any given indication in the rare disease world. You have very few patients that are suitable, if you will, uh, uh, to, to give you the best efficacy possible so that you can hope for a, an approval. And you know the general uh, perception of a, a very small market uh, means uh, you know, pharmaceutical companies are more willing to put their resources into other indications that are more prevalent. Um, so by thinking about all of those, we think newborn screening uh, research and, and, and large-scale pilot studies really can solve not just our uh, uh, issues of trying to get the research part down, trying to get the uh, RUSP nomination package together, trying to push down the pipeline of getting to the nomination and implementation, but it can also help uh, the uh, uh, therapy development and, and uh, prompt the pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies to put their resources into this field. And that kind of partnership really from all stakeholders is what's needed to prompt us forward. And uh, so that's how Project Guardian uh, came to shape. Thanks, Dr. Hugh, for that great explanation about Project Guardian, which is, when it's completed, will be the largest genomic newborn screening study to date in North America. Um, it's targeting whole genome sequencing in 100,000 newborns in New York, and this is a significant goal. There are other countries who are undertaking similar activities, such as Genomics England, where Dr. David Bick, who is featured on our Spotlight podcast also, is leading that effort. Can you talk a little bit about what efforts are being undertaken to share the information and strategies on, I'm, I'm sure they're evolving, best practices for the dissemination of sequencing information to families, clinicians, and researchers? Absolutely. I think, uh, so first of all, it is a big study that we are undertaking, and there are uh, quite a number of studies uh, similarly to ours uh, that are taking place around the globe. So we're happy to see those efforts launching as well, because one of the key issues that we all face is how big of a scale the studies really need to be to solve the problems that we're uh, trying to solve. Um, in the genomic space, the reason why we cannot interpret our genomes very well yet, uh, a, a key issue is that we don't have enough data. And when I say we don't have enough data, it, it, it really is a, a huge gap between where we at minimum needs to be in the millions of genomes versus what we have right now. Um, when we think about the geno genome space, uh, each individual has 6 billion codes that you know any number of them could be different from other individuals. So when you don't have enough individuals uh, in your data set, what's gonna happen is what statistic statisticians call overfitting. So uh, take it to the extreme. If you have two individuals, and they have plenty of differences, of course. And you look at their genomes, you find plenty of differences. And uh, for example, you say, okay, for this gene that I know encodes for hair color determination, uh, this version gives one individual black hair, this other version gives the other individual uh, white hair. So uh, that must be a, a super separator of some sort, if you will, classifier. Uh, that determines hair color. 
that kind of uh, phenomenon is indeed overfitting because as you have more individuals coming in, you get their genotypes and you figure out, oh, that's actually not the case. And so uh, the, the data space for each individual is really what's, um, uh, what's complicated here. And so I think each of these studies as they launch with the goal of enrolling thousands to hundreds of thousands of individuals, it's still not enough. It's only the beginning. We need to combine all the data sets to har harness the uh, the most information, the, the biggest um, uh, efficiency in running such big uh, scale uh, studies in order to get to the answer we need. So as a beginning, uh, we have just had a conference called the International Conference on Newborn Sequencing convened by Dr. Robert Green in Boston uh, and with the help of other organizations as well. And uh, I think pretty much all of the currently launched and announced studies uh, have representatives there. There was a very in-depth discussion, closed door discussion uh, with all the uh, group PIs uh, ahead of the meeting to hash out a lot of details. And I think in terms of data sharing, it is a very tricky question because one of the, uh, I, I guess, concerns on the public's mind often is how would you use the data? Uh, how would you protect the data privacy for these individuals taking part of the studies? And so data sharing across studies is a very tricky practice and it needs a lot of careful thoughts but i think the long story short the uh the thing that we have right now is all of the study pis are in agreement that we need to do some form of data sharing uh to ensure that we get the best out of these studies and the actual path we're going to take is undefined but the discussion is going to uh, uh, continue and the collaborative spirit is established. Wow, that's amazing. And you're wearing so many hats for us today, Dr. Hugh. And with that, I'll turn it over to our, my co-host, Dr. Ki Chan, to continue to ask you a few more questions about your story. Dr. Hugh, thank you for sharing the mission of Project Guardian. You are a parent of two children with a rare disorder called mucopolysaccharidosis, two also known as Hunter syndrome. Your first child was diagnosed with the condition around the age of three and a half years old. Can you tell us about how you found out about the diagnosis and what happened next? Yeah, absolutely. So it's been 12 years uh, since we started this journey. Um, uh, just very quickly for our audience, uh, MPS2 is a lysosomal storage disorder. Uh, what's happening in their bodies is a key enzyme uh, that is uh, needed in the metabolic uh, pathway of uh, some uh, polysugars or mucopolysaccharides uh, was mutated and uh, uh, rendered non-functional. And therefore, those particular molecules, big sugar molecules, starts to be uh, accumulated inside the cells all throughout their body. And therefore, it is a systemic disease, impacts uh, pretty much all of the body parts and organs of their body, especially the brain. Their development uh, is, uh, has been delayed. And, uh, you know, the initial findings were uh, a, a fairly short process, even though it felt really long. And I, I want to uh, give proper credit to the so-called term uh, diagnosis, uh, diagnostic odyssey. We spent about half a year visiting all kinds of uh, specialists until we find out uh, the final diagnosis. Um, but the exploration started when our oldest boy, uh, Mudong, was around two. He had language delay. At that time, his uh, joints uh, felt stiffer than other kids of the age. And after, uh, you know, not dealing with uh, uh, medical experts, but with other parents and teachers, uh, we were uh, reassured that this is fine. This is uh, typical. Uh, we did talk to his pediatrician. 
pediatrician uh, who told us uh, bilingual families typically have language delay. That's normal. He's going to catch up and all that. When he was age three and not having any improvements, we started seeking uh, specialist help uh, in addition to the pediatricians. Long story short, after a half a year, when we got to finally the geneticist, uh, he made the diagnosis, but he told us it is only because he was able to meet another hunter patient about two years prior to our encounter. And that case took him two years to diagnose because he had no idea what it was. It was his first hunter patient in his 40 years of practice, and we were the second. And so, you know, in, in that regard, uh, there are a lot of uh, more extensive uh, diagnostic odysseys out there. Of course, you hear in the uh, community cases that took five, 10 years, or even unresolved after 10, 20 years. So we do consider ourselves lucky in that we found out the answer sooner. And also we have a disease that has an approved treatment at that time, uh, even though the standard treatment, which is enzyme replacement therapy, does not go into the brain, uh, does not cross the blood-brain barrier, uh, but it is an approved treatment. So there was a bit of hope uh, instilled to our experience at the time. Dr. Hu, thank you for sharing your first child diagnosis with us. At the age of 12 months old, your second child was diagnosed before the disease was evident due to his older sibling's finding. Can you share the clinical outcomes and any differences in the two siblings? Yeah, so shortly after Mudong's diagnosis, uh, we moved on to Muhua, the younger one. And uh, unfortunately, he was also diagnosed with the same disease. The fortunate thing is he, at that time, was pretty much pre-symptomatic. There was not a whole lot that would suggest he's affected. He uh, physically and developmentally met all of his milestones, uh, and he started treatment uh, right around one year old. Um, and what we have observed over the next decade was what eventually prompted me to jump into newborn screening and uh, you know, made it uh, my uh, you know, daily job. I often describe myself as a parent advocate turned into a newborn screening researcher, and that's credit to the boys. So what we have observed is after about eight years of therapy, uh, Mudong was progressing pretty rapidly, if you will, over the years, uh, to the extent that in 2019, we discussed with his medical care team and decided to move him into palliative care, stopped the active treatment, uh, and starting the second phase of his life, if you will, um, because of how severe his symptoms have become. And, but for Muhua, we have uh, continued the therapy. We're enrolling him into uh, new clinical trials. And the surprising differences in terms of both physical capability and developmental milestones he had, had uh, reached was startling. So for example, he learned how to ride a bicycle without training wheels. Uh, that's actually hard to see in hunter boys because uh, joint stiffness was one of the most prominent symptoms. And pretty much all the hunter boys that we have encountered uh, uh, in, in the community um, are incapable of riding bicycles, uh, not to mention without training wheels. Uh, he, he learned how to swim uh, independently he was able to solve jigsaw puzzles, which was his favorite, uh, up to 300 pieces. Uh, and the most astonishing part about solving the jigsaw puzzles was that when he was solving those really complicated puzzles, to me anyway, 300 pieces still daunting. Uh, but he, when he's facing that, he's able to sit down for almost three hours to put it together. and. Three hours is almost like a miracle because hyperactivity and ADHD is often accompanying the hunter boys uh, because of the uh, storage of those uh, molecules in their brain. And so, you know, these, I think if you consider the context, the boys have the same disease, they indeed have the same genomic mutation that caused the uh, enzyme to be non-functional. 
and they have grown up in very similar environments, same family, same diet,、uh, even go to the same school, same teachers. So one of the most likely reason that that has been attributed to this is his earlier diagnosis and start of treatment. And even though the standard and then Uh, replacement therapy does not go through the blood-brain barrier, as I mentioned earlier. There are reports、um, out there that these enzymes、uh, do leak through a little bit at times, so that can certainly result in the delay of symptom progression、uh, in all kinds of ways. And so, the natural question for me as a genomic scientist at that time to ask is, you know, what's going to happen if We diagnose this early,、uh, earlier than what they have been, and unfortunately, with their single point mutation,、uh, which caused the disease, you will really have to do a targeted sequencing for this gene if you want to know.、Uh, and there's a, a huge gap between,、uh, you know, what we can do. Uh, for a diagnosis purpose versus a screening purpose, as a newborn, there's no information for you to know. Oh, I need to sequence this particular gene, right? So, in that context, doing newborn screening becomes virtually the only way for us to pursue. And that's when I started、uh, in 2018 to jump into the newborn screening space. How do they administer the therapies that your boys get? You know, starting from the morning when they get up,、uh, certainly going to、uh, school. They go to special day uh, classes. Uh, they have one-on-one aides who are there to support them、uh, for their academic needs. Afterwards, they go to an after-school center、uh, who specializes in、uh, caring for kids with special needs. And I must say, I'm close by. Many families don't have that kind of support, though,、uh, and, and at least one parent needs to、uh, stay home or be able to find a caregiver to take care of the kids after school.、Um, and their therapy is in the form of weekly enzyme、uh, infusion. And how it happens is typically,、uh, you know,、uh, for the time being, only. Mohua is going for the therapy, and on Fridays in the morning,、uh, an infusion nurse comes to our house,、uh, gets the medicine,、uh, take his、uh, vitals, get him to sit down,、uh, access the port、uh, on his front chest,、uh, and start the infusion. The infusion typically takes about four hours to finish, and afterwards there's an observation period.、Um, So in in all, it takes about five and a half to six hours uh, uh, every week、uh, Fridays. It used to be longer when they were younger. The infusion was at a slower rate、uh, because of the possibility of infusion-related reactions if you infuse too fast.、Uh, and at the very beginning, Mudong did have severe infusion-related reactions that. Uh, necessitated hospital stays every time he has an infusion, and that lasted for,、uh, I think, about six months until he finally his body was getting used to the enzymes infused and was able to do that through the day rather than staying at the hospital.、Um, on top of that, their various、uh, systems organs needs to be checked regularly,、uh, either. Semi-annually or annually, and that includes a lot of specialist visits.、Um, the we're in the Kaiser Permanente system. They have a so-called skeletal dysplasia clinic that they organize、uh, twice a year, with a whole bunch of specialists coming in at the same time. So we typically spend a day every half year at the hospital to check on pretty much everything、um, uh, on their body.、Um, Yeah, that's、uh, that's how、uh, how their typical days go like. Thank you for sharing the process and caregiving to your children with Hunter syndrome, Doctor Hugh. Any advice for new parents? Throughout the course and interacting with the rare disease community and the MPS community, what we have found out is, even with the same disease, MPS two, 
families are having very different experiences and very different challenges. Some are common, but you know there are always very unique challenges. Uh, so if you were to rely on just talking to the uh, physicians who are caring for them, you may not get uh, a very uh, direct or on-target answer. So our experience has been, we connected with the disease organization in the space, uh, in our case, the National MPS Society, uh, almost right away. And there was a lot of help uh, because they, in that community, has a lot of experience with the various unique challenges that each parent might face. Uh, we also joined the Facebook group for uh, MPS2 parents, where you can see a lot of uh, uh, questions being asked, a lot of questions being answered. Um, uh, one example is both boys had uh, a severe sleep uh, disturbation for uh, various, time, uh, various times in their lives. And when that happened, uh, the psychiatrist and the neurologists were caring for them who never had counter patients in their practice before had to go for a trial and error approach. They, they prescribed, I believe, at least 10 different kinds of medications before we uh, were able to settle in on a regimen. Later on, after we started asking questions on the Facebook groups, we figured a lot of parents actually have similar experiences. So we provided what we have gone through, what has been effective and what has not. And some of the parents had found out those medications that we eventually use were helpful. And they recommended, uh, brought that information to their psychiatrist and got the prescription. And you know, that drastically shortened the trial uh, and error uh, uh, period and got the family to stabilize uh, sooner. I think it's um, it's something that I really suggest new parents to do. Uh, there are help out there, and the biggest help sometimes are from the patient community who have had similar experiences and uh, have some of the challenges in common. And so don't just rely on the uh, primary care physicians and the specialists, because uh, as a parent, we live day in and day out with these kids. In terms of their care, we probably do know more than the specialists, especially uh, specialists who are not exactly MPS specialists, for example. They are probably geneticists who knows a lot about genetic diseases, but not any one per in particular, right? So. Uh, I think that would be my uh, uh, best advice that I can think of for new parents. In thinking about new parents, Dr. Hugh, were you aware of newborn screening before your first son was diagnosed? That's a great question. Um, we actually talk about that a lot now I'm doing newborn screening research. Uh, my own experience was uh, I didn't know about newborn screening until my second child, Muhua, was born, uh, because it just so happens that uh, when they're taking the samples, I was there by the bed. Uh, so I got to see the pamphlet. I got to talk to the nurse who was taking the uh, the, the, the heel prick uh, and got to know a little bit about uh, newborn screening. It also you know, helped that at that time, my daily job was to develop a uh, postnatal diagnosis uh, tool uh, in the form of microarrays. So I, I got some knowledge about new, uh, genetic diseases at that time. So I was able to glean at the pamphlet and got to know, oh, this is something useful to be done. But it is uh, an ongoing challenge, I think, for new parents to, uh, first of all, be educated ahead of time and be aware of newborn screening and how important it is. Uh, and second of all, uh, when it's actually happening to have uh, sort of the anticipation of what's gonna happen and the uh, recollection afterwards, um, because many parents do tell you, oh, I only remember there was a poke. I had no idea what it was about. Oh, I remember there was a pamphlet, but I just tossed it away afterwards. So these are, Commonly seen, and I think as a newborn screening um, uh, community on the care side, uh, we 
we do need to think about how we can improve those so that the new parents' experiences can be improved and can uh, buy in more to the vision of why newborn screening is important. Newborn screening for Hunter syndrome is now added to the recommended uniform screening panel, also commonly known as the RUS. And you are part of these efforts, Dr. Hu. Can you describe this journey of adding a condition to the recommended uniform screening panel? And do you have any advice for other families on this nomination process? Yeah, it's uh, actually fresh on my mind because it feels like it just happened. Uh, I started to be aware of the uh, nomination in 2019 in a NPS family conference. And I thought, oh, this is great. We certainly should do this, and I would love to contribute. So I connected to Terry Klein at uh, the MPS Society and got to know the progress. And, you know, uh, she was kind enough to share with me the nomination package. And I was able to um, help connect uh, with the MPS TRN. Back then, I wasn't uh, really connected yet, but uh, Amy was uh, kindly offering a pre-review of the package so that we can be positioned better for the nomination process and not have any you know, silly mistakes. Um, long story short, it took two years for us to move to the stage of evidence review. And I was uh, honored to be invited as one of the uh, uh, technical review panel uh, expert, I guess. Um, as a family member, I provided our experiences, uh, but one of the, I consider key contributions, not really from me, from my boys, is during the evidence review, we soon figured out that we don't have enough evidence uh, in the form of uh, showing the benefit of early diagnosis and treatment. And it's an interesting concept because when families, and I'm wearing my uh, parent hat, when families consider evidence, we often think of evidence as, you know, our uh, uh, presentation, storytelling, uh, you know, uh, testimony, that kind of thing. But in the process of Rosp nomination, the evidence review is taking evidence in the form of, uh, in, in a nutshell, peer-reviewed published articles in medical journals. And so our stories, as touching as they can be, um, only has a small weight, if you will, in that evidence review process. Uh, and a published article carries a lot more weight. So obviously, we have a story to show the boys had drastic differences. Um, but if we can turn that into a publication, uh, that would hold a lot more weight. And that's what we did essentially. Uh, we have a researcher reaching out to us, uh, uh, Nathan Grant, who was working with Dr. Uh, uh, Julie Eisengart at, uh, at the uh, uh, university uh, at that time. And they reached out and say, hey, Mike, how about we work on a case report together so that we can document your boy's experience and the outcome differences and use that as an evidence. And I say, of course, I, I, I love to do that. And here's where the credit goes to my boys and uh, my wife. All of the data that we have provided came from a decade of careful data keeping and logging from my wife and of course from the boys undergoing this whole uh, process. Uh, she somehow was determined from the get-go. She's a scientist as well, I just want to mention. And from the get-go, she decided, I am going to document all of the experiences and data that we have encountered throughout the process because somehow it's going to be useful one day. And sure enough, it, it is. In that case, we provided all of the data that has formed the basis of that case report and Within a pretty short turnaround of about four months, we were able to put the manuscript together, send it for review, going through revisions, and have it published. And that was just in time for the final review at the ACHDNC, and that um, you know certainly served as an important piece of evidence. 
I think it, it it's a great greatest form of legacy for my boys in their own way. They contributed to medical research, and they contributed to how um, newborn screening and MPS two is going to go hand in hand to solve you know future problems for uh, uh, for kids who. Eventually, there will be more kids affected by MPS2, but at least they would have a head start in their treatment and hopefully a better outcome in their lives. What a great story and so many sort of moments that you somehow capitalized on, you know, seeing your second son's sample being taken in the newborn nursery, thinking about ways to write a case study so then later it could be used during the evidence review. It's really um, very motivating um, and very inspirational. So thank you for sharing that. One thing in your earlier question of uh, advice for other families on the nomination process, I think there's a a lot of um, fear and hesitation, if you will, because the nomination process is a daunting process. And as a parent, uh, I mean, I'm probably more equipped with my background knowledge of genetics and uh, in in the healthcare field to come into this. But I think even if a parent does not have these, they are always equipped with the best um, tools available for helping with the nomination process, which is their experience, their lived experience with their kids throughout their medical journey. And that in the form of case studies as an evidence is tremendous asset for the nomination process. And so I would really hope to impart the message to the parents out there. If your disease organization, if your disease field is considering uh, nominating that disease to the ROS process, I will highly encourage parents to find researchers in the field, uh, maybe through the organization, maybe through some other channels, but find them so that you can document your kids' stories, and those are invaluable to the nomination process, more than you could think of. And, and that's you know what we have experienced and uh, really uh, derived from our experience, and I hope um, that would be useful for more diseases to eventually make it to the rust and, and be screened. Right. It's such a great reminder. Um, thank you for pointing that out. I think you know, your boys' case studies show the natural history of mucopolysaccharidosis or Hunter syndrome. And it's so important to document that. And for, for us as researchers, when we hear, oh, well, you just need to publish a case study, we sort of think, oh, that's daunting. When you talk to a parent and say, well, let's get a case study about your child's case, they're like, we're on it. We'll do it. And so we know there's so many advocacy organizations out there that could really help tell those stories. So that's a great nugget of advice um, to really link up researchers with parents and families to get some of those case studies in the literature. And I think even after MPS2 is now added to nationwide screening, getting stories of how children are doing would be really important. So I think that's a really great idea. So thank you for Thank you for sharing that. So turning a little bit to prospective parents. So Mike, what do you think prospective parents should know about newborn screening research? I mean, with the Guardians program, your recruiters are essentially going to be um, talking to um, moms and dads at their at their one of their most you know sort of busy times of having a baby in a birthing hospital and talking to them about the importance of being part of this research project. So, what do you think we can help tell prospective parents about newborn screening research? I think the key really is for us as a society, a caring society, be it the prospective parents or the older generation or the younger generation, it's important for everyone to realize why we do newborn screening research and why newborn screening itself is so important as a public health program. Often when we think about the screening, the affected individuals as a proportion uh, uh, in the outcome is uh, 
not high. It's about 0.3% or so. Uh, and about half of those are hearing impaired. So really with the ones that uh, have inherited uh, uh, disorders, it's about 0.15%, uh, if you will. And it's easy for a parent when considering their individual case to think, oh, that's too small of a percentage. It's not going to hit me. But when you take a bigger picture view, we have about 10% of the population having some form of rare disease. And most of those diseases, I believe there was a number over 85%, have a genetic cause. Certainly not all of those have a treatment. Certainly not all of those can be identified in, for example, in, in the way of sequencing, but a lot of them are, and a lot of them will have uh, treatments available soon. We have a, a booming field in gene uh, therapy that I was told there are over 3,000 INDs filed, which uh, many of them will eventually lead to therapies. So um, in, in a nutshell, what we're looking at is a field that is soon going to be filled with therapies, and it's important for us to identify babies who are affected by these diseases early enough so that their lives can be really turned around. And that's the power of newborn screening. I think that message needs to reach to all of the parents so that they can see, A, it is not really affecting a small percentage to you know, for, for anyone to neglect. It's not 0.1% of the population. I mean, 0.1 at the population level is still high, but it's easy for individuals to dismiss. It is actually in a single digit range uh, eventually. And I think as a caring society, when we think about the cost and the price we pay as a parent who walks away with a negative screening, um, it, it should be noted that all of these are worth it uh, when you consider it in the lens of the families who are affected. They are a minority overall, but the experience that they are going to go through is going to be tremendous and um, challenging. And so anything we can do to alleviate that is worthwhile. And that's where I'm coming from. I think the nomination of MPS2 certainly is uh, high up there in my heart, but I also think we cannot stop just at the step of nominating our own favorite disease. We, as a field, and I'm not I'm part of it, I consider, are not going to stop until all of the treatable and diagnosable and treatable genetic diseases can be identified early enough, and all of the kids who can be helped will be helped. And that's where I'm coming from when it comes to you know, educating the public, if you will, about newborn screening. I think it's really important for everyone to come to the realization that it's not just about you and me as individuals, it's about the whole society. Thank you, and that's so profound. And you know, one of the big benefits of newborn screening, it is, it's population-based. So it's almost like for us as researchers, you know, the perfect cohort to be able to bring genomic technologies to screen, diagnose, and to design treatments that really make a difference at a population level. So no matter where a baby's born, no matter their insurance or their parents' ability to pay, they could get a newborn screen. I think we can talk a lot about, you know, what happens after a newborn screen and we can always do better. But I love that reminder that, you know, it's really about every baby and every baby getting a screen and getting a chance um, to really have, you know, a brighter future. And I think one thing that your story points out is just for some of these new therapies, it's really in the urgency of implementing treatments as soon as we can and maybe not fully understanding why does this treatment help you talked a lot about not passing the you know blood brain barrier but how much your second child is doing so much better developmentally and so i think there's a lot we don't know and so really wanting to do those longitudinal data collection studies so we can follow families like yours and really build for the future so that every baby 
um, has the same opportunities. So with that hat on about research and longitudinal follow-up, you mentioned that the MBSTRN did do a review of your MPS2 nomination to the advisory committee and provided you some feedback. And with that interaction, we were able to invite you to be part of our steering committee and you're the chair of our researcher needs work group, which is one of our expert work groups. So we were so thankful for you to join in both with your parent and with your researcher hat on into MBSTRN efforts. So Mike, can you talk a little bit about where you think MBSTRN can help support newborn screening research and especially your efforts in the new Guardian project? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, my inspiration to join MBS Charan really is to see what I can do to help the community and, you know, and the researchers so that we can all work together to push newborn screening forward. I think from a community perspective, the kind of efforts that MBS Charan has extended to the MPS Society during the MPS2 nomination process is something that can serve as a, I want to say, a, a good model for us to generalize going forward. There are a lot of disease organizations out there wanting to nominate their own disease, but it is such a challenging and daunting task. It requires special skill sets and knowledge to do it well and, and do it at the sufficient level for uh, moving into the evidence review, right? So I think there it's not just about reviewing the package. It could also include helping those disease organizations understand what exactly is needed in that nomination package and what form of evidence is needed to be collected. And if they don't have that, how to get those evidence assembled, how to consider um, you know, various pieces of that uh, requirement and what can contribute to those and so that they can start working on collecting them. And, and that is a, a huge piece towards the long-term success of uh, nomination. Uh, and then, you know, along the way, also educate and help the patients uh, and, and their families to understand how we can all contribute to that evidence base, uh, how, you know, case studies can be changing the course of a review, uh, you know, in, in, in just a couple of months um, and how to invest time to uh, get to, you know, get to be connected to the right researchers. And we can, we have a lot of researchers in our network at MBSGRN and we can help connect them to the right ones to document their case. Um, and at the researcher level, I think for uh, studies like the Guardian project, what we hope to get help from a organization like the MBSTRM is to foster the relationships and collaborations amongst the projects that are ongoing. Um, I think data sharing is such a sensitive and tricky question, not just because it's you know, patient privacy involved, but also because traditionally in the academia environment, data sharing is not unfortunately, a common practice, if you will. And the NIH has to release a, a, a couple of uh, data sharing policies lately to extend it further. But even so, because of the complexity of you know, research data in so many ways, shape and form, building a central database to you know, deposit that is challenging. So I think fostering in some ways, better data collaboration, at least in this case, uh, studies that are centered on the same kind of approach, same kind of uh, population, same kind of uh, uh, outcome uh, desire, if you will, would be tremendous for all of the projects to benefit from. And the other thing I think uh, in the research field that MBR's turn really is uh, positioned well, perfectly to help with, is long-term data follow-up. We know that genomic data itself only tells us a possibility, if you will, sometimes a high possibility, sometimes a low possibility of contracting a disease. It is the outcome 
that really determines if you have a firm diagnosis or not, right? And so long-term follow-up, long-term data collection, and uh, integration into the genomic data uh, so that it, it becomes a continuum, if you will, from DNA to the eventual outcome is going to be key for us to improve the diagnosis accuracy and you know, screening accuracy and diagnosis accuracy for a uh, sequencing-based uh, approach. So I think those are prime examples of how NBRCRN is so well positioned to help. And I sincerely hope our funding agencies can realize how important those are and how integral of a role that NBRCRN has been playing and can be playing in addition to those so that um, newborn screening research can really turn into the and be translated into the reality that's implemented in public health labs. Thank you. We couldn't agree more. And, you know, with a project like Project Guardian, it really reminds us that newborn screening research isn't always just about the newborn. With genomic sequencing, we can tell a lot about what might happen later in life, and we can tell a lot about what may be going on in the family. And so I think there's so many opportunities for MBSTRN and for your colleagues and yourself at Guardian to work together. Dr. Hu, thank you for sharing your perspectives as a researcher, parent, and advocate for newborn screening research on the Newborn Screening Spotlight today. We'd like to end our podcast with our signature question, and that is, what does newborn screening research mean to you? Um, I've been thinking about this question, and I... And I think the answer for me really is that through newborn screening research, I think I've found the purpose of my life. And I think that's common for parents with uh, kids with rare disease. Um, we all go through a period of soul searching. You know, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? What does this all mean? Why are we, you know, facing these challenges, is there anything behind it? Why me? Um, and, 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 you know, a while back, we did a presentation for an event and my wife was there as well. She quoted something that I thought was really meaningful uh, and, and, and made me realize why this is so uh, important to me uh, in my, you know, soul searching process. She quoted uh, some words from Steve Jobs and uh, not to reiterate the whole thing. The gist of it is in your life, there are a lot of dots along the way, and but you cannot connect these dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking backward. And so when you look back and connect the dots, you will realize, oh, what you're doing is actually meaningful. And so because you cannot connect your dots looking forward, all you can trust is your instinct, your desire, your wish. Just follow your heart and do what you think is right. And when I look back at my past, I think in some ways, my past really uh, was on the dotted path that are connected to push me to become a newborn screening researcher. And I think that once I figured that out, I find myself at peace with all of the things happening in our lives and um, my struggles with my professional life and, you know, the personal life. And I think newborn screening was striking that perfect equilibrium of something that I really reckon with, something that I uh, really want to contribute to. And <laughs> it's interesting. My wife always um, said, you know, I'm, I'm going to support you to do newborn screening no matter what. And it's been four years. I honestly have not been taking any form of payment for doing newborn screening research. And, but, you know, in a, in, in a nutshell, that does not matter because it is what I wanted to do. I'm, I'm willing to do it no matter what. And I am happy that we have come so far as to launch the Guardian study and actually started to enroll uh, families into the study. But I also know it is going to be a long way going forward. So my, um, my found meaning, my found purpose in newborn screening 
is going to sustain my push into seeing through that process. And, you know, we're not going to stop, as I mentioned, until all the babies who can be helped are helped. Wow, such powerful words. Um, we're so lucky to have you, Dr. Hugh, um, as a member of MBSTRN and as a guest on the Newborn Screening Spotlight. Thank you so much. Dr. Hugh, thank you for all you have done and sharing your powerful story today with us. Thank you very much for allowing me to share my experience with the audience. Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved. Stay informed. Help us advance discoveries. Together, Together let's, let's increase, increase the, the impact, impact of newborn screening research by listening to your stories. stories.